Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the third in our series of the AUKUS Amplified podcast recorded at the American Association Hip and Knee Surgeons Fall Meeting in the fall of 2019. Today on this particular podcast, I'm actually honored to be on the podcast with my co-host Mike Ass, who's going to be introducing himself. And I am Stefan Obini. I'm the chair of Digital Health and Social Media Committee for the American Association of Knee Surgeons, and I'm a professor at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. Mike, where are you working? Thanks, Stefano. Thanks for having me. I'm Mike Ass from uh, HSS in New York City, HSS Hospital for Special Surgery, since you went the UCSF way, <laughs> and uh, member of the Digital Health Committee with Stefano. And so we're lucky to be here today and have some fun. And we have Jeremy Gilliland with us from University of Utah, who's going to go ahead and introduce himself. It's great to be here. I'm Jeremy Gillen. I'm an associate professor of orthopedics at the University of Utah. I'm also the chief of orthopedic surgery at the VA in Salt Lake. It's great to be here. So, uh, Jeremy, you presented a really interesting paper. Could you make a favor and just kind of tell us about it? Yeah, so we decided to look at mind-body interventions and their sort of their impact on post-operative recovery as well as sort of the, the perioperative period, both preoperatively as patients are preparing for surgery and in that early post-operative period. And what gave you the idea of looking at that? You know, I mean, I think as we look at the opioid crisis in the U.S., I mean, we're all sort of trying to figure out how to get our patients through surgery better with less, you know, pain issues. And we're looking at adjuncts like paraticular injections and blocks and all these things, and most of them are pharmacologic. And, you know, we've got a center at the University of Utah where they really have looked a lot at mind-body interventions and their impact on various health states, including pain. And so I think it, it sort of intrigued us to say, let's, let's get these guys involved. And really, honestly, one of our, our PAs was quite interested in mindfulness and its impact. She'd had some personal experience herself, and she asked them to come and see if they could participate in our preoperative education pathway for our patients. So in orthopedics, I don't know that a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about mindfulness and hypnosis and some of these things. So before we get into your study, can you just define a little bit of some of the interventions you guys were using? Yeah, sure. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not the best at defining this because I still am trying to wrap my head around it. But I think mindfulness, I mean, really, in its essence, it's sort of a mind training technique, if you will. It helps us to really focus on the present, focus on the now, and focus on your thoughts and your feelings and your sort of bodily sensations in a non-judgmental way. I mean, often you can sort of, you can feel pain or you can have a sensation of discomfort and, and that can be a very judged thing where you can feel it as a negative thing. But mindfulness is really just the focus on all that's happening in the now in a non-judgmental way so that you can get more joy in sort of every situation and potentially have more control over the situation and less of your body controlling you or your anxieties or your feelings controlling you. So my experience with that, tell me if this is about where you're going, is that when they teach you these things, they say, observe it. Yes, your knee hurts. Now let's go on to your ankle. Let's go on to your toes. The, those don't hurt. And suppress your feeling, oh, my God, I'm having pain. Oh, my God, it's going to be worse. And everything's going to go wrong. And this is terrible. Then you amplify that response. Right? Is that the exactly. sort of behavioral change yeah, that you're asking to do? Exactly. It's just meditating on the moment, sort of understanding that there are areas of potential discomfort or issues that you're dealing with, but there are plenty of other positive things happening as well, both inside you and around you that you can be focused on in the moment as well. Now, those weren't the only interventions you guys were using, correct? You had a couple other arms to the study, too. So can you tell us a little bit of some of the other interventions you tried? Yeah, because we weren't really sure that mindfulness was really going to be the, the one that was you know, going to be the solution. And so there are plenty of other 
cognitive behavioral therapies and mind-body therapies out there, honestly, of which I don't know much about many of them, you know. So uh, we looked at uh, hypnosis as another mind-body therapy. You know, hypnosis is sort of using your imagination or going to a different place, if you will. It's sort of getting yourself into a deep state of focus, again, so that you can potentially control the situation. My experience with hypnosis is I have three kids, and one of my kids, we took some hypnobirthing classes and just helped my wife through the labor process by helping her go to a different place as she was going through labor and she got through that with no medication and it was a pretty profound experience and so we use that same technique here in a 15-minute intervention though you got to understand these patients were given 15 minutes of training for all three of these techniques but again hypnosis is kind of using your imagination to go to a different place to get through something Let's talk about how you actually did it, the 15 minutes. Tell us yeah. about the structure of your research project. We have a class that we call the Joint Academy. It's a preoperative education class. It's for all of our patients, all of our joints patients. We have about 70% of our patients attend it, so it's something we really stress. We don't mandate patients go, but most go. And that's a preoperative education place where they come and they learn about what's going to happen at surgery and they learn what to expect. And so as part of that class, we decided to bring in this component of mind-body therapy and give our patients 15 minutes of education with something. So we didn't have a control group that got nothing. So all these patients that came to the class got one of three interventions, but we used cognitive behavioral therapy as our sort of control, if you will, because CBT is a technique where you educate patients about sort of the influence that their thoughts can have on their actions. And over time, you can then change the way that you think and potentially change the way that you behave. But that usually takes months to years of multiple sessions with a therapist. It's generally not seen to have any impact in a 15-minute session. But everybody that came to the class got one of three of those 15-minute interventions. And how did you choose who got what? What was the sort of structure? That's a great question. Unfortunately, we didn't randomize per patient because we really had one psychologist who could give the intervention. And he's a great guy. He does all of our training. And so he came and we randomized the session. So that day that they were there, that session got randomized to one of those therapies. So all the people that were in that class that day got one of three of the therapies. Then the next class would be randomized to one of the three techniques. So rather than you know, individually randomizing. So how did you look at the patients afterwards? How long did you test them for? How far did you monitor the patients out? It was kind of hard for us to really figure out what we would measure with these patients. And so pre-intervention, so when these patients came to their class, before we did that 15-minute intervention, we had them take some scores, a pain anxiety score, a pain interference score, a desire for pain medication score, sort of an overall anxiety score as well. And then they got the 15-minute intervention. We waited then 15 more minutes while they did some other things in the class. And then we came back and asked them those same metrics. So what's your anxiety level now compared to what you were half an hour ago before we did these interventions? And then we let the patients go on their standard course and then they got their surgery at whatever time they had their surgery. And we followed them out in our standard fashion out to six weeks and we followed their physical function scores. So we didn't follow those same metrics in terms of anxiety and pain and all those things, but we wanted to see would there be any impact on real promise or real patient reported outcome measures in terms of physical function. So we looked at their physical function preoperative and at six weeks post-op. And then we looked at these peri-interventional metrics in terms of pain and anxiety level. Did you also check the mental scores on all those things? Because it's usually both the physical and... Right. Yeah, so I don't have that data right now. And so I want to go back and look at mental scores. I want to look at opioid use. I think that's really important. And unfortunately, we didn't have all those metrics for all these patients now. We're now running forward because I think... I was honestly, frankly, surprised to see that we saw this impact. Let's talk about the results. Yeah, right, right. So 
what we saw was that as we suspected that the CBT group really didn't have any significant changes in any of those metrics, even the anxiety and the pain interference and the pain scores, they really were no different after that short intervention. However, the mindfulness and hypnosis groups both were right after the intervention, they had less pain and less anxiety in general than they did before. Now, out to six weeks post-op, typically what we see with the PROMISE score, so PROMISE is, is a computer adaptive test. It's not widely recognized or not everybody's using it. We've looked at it in, in comparison to legacy scores and it really does have less of a ceiling and less of a floor effect. It's a great score. It's a great metric. And so we use it really in all of our patients. And we've looked at the, the PFCAT or the physical function score out to six weeks in our total knee patients and we're about to publish in total hip. And in total knee, we typically don't see significant physical function improvement out to six weeks. We see it start to occur after six weeks and we see the most change from six weeks to three months but typically we don't see a statistical significant improvement in that score. However, in our mindfulness patients, we saw significance for whatever reason that is. But in that short six week early period, we actually saw that they had physical function improvement that was both statistically and clinically significant as they met the MCID of that score, which to us was very unique. Just real quick, MCID? Minimally clinically important significance. So it's that score at which you jump over the point that it's now not just a statistically significant improvement in number, but an actual minimal improvement that's clinically significant. Right, because sometimes we can see a statistically valid right. difference, but who cares if it's 0 0.34 or 0 0.37? Right. It doesn't, but there is a point at which, in fact, those differences can be measured as a clinical improvement that patients say, yeah, I'm better. Right, right. And, and so for this score, we found that to be about 3.3 on that scale. And they, these patients had a 5.5 increase in their score over that six-week period. So more than we've seen in the past with our historical controls and more than we saw with hypnosis or CBT. I mean, that's fascinating. A mental health intervention leading to a physical function improvement. Yeah. Any thoughts? I mean, I know this is a little bit out there, but yeah. any thoughts as to why <laughs> or how? If you think about what the technique involves, it involves thinking about your situation and sort of being more joyous in the situation, realizing that you have control over your feelings and your thoughts, not your body's sort of sensory inputs. So if that's really what they're getting, it's not that surprising to me that if you can be more joyous in the situation, potentially you can participate in your recovery better and get through the process easier and better. So one of the things that Mike and I work on on the Digital Health and Social Media Committee is to bring awareness to some of the technological tools that are available to us. So no, not everybody has in their practice a trained therapist right, who can deliver exactly. a number of things. Yeah. But there are now those tools available in a digital fashion. You want to talk a bit about that, Mike? Yeah, you know, I think as we start to look around, we're here at the meeting, there's an exhibit hall filled with people and they're showing us new apps and new things. And a lot of these are patient engagement platforms, right? There are ways that we can continuously intervene with our patients. And certainly for those of us who don't have a psychologist who can do this or just don't have practices that are large enough to have big joint camps, this is kind of taking the place of that and allowing us to engage our patients and give them this information. So what do you think? Do you think we could put some kind of a mindfulness portion to one of these patient engagement platforms? Oh, I absolutely think we can. I mean, there are several mindfulness apps out there that you can download on your phone and use. And I think that they're, they're, they're probably very functional tools. We're actually trying to look at doing this now in another prospective study where we've now taken the hypnosis group out and we're just looking at mindfulness compared to CBT. Because CBT, again, has sort of our control. And we're seeing the same impact, the same effect in hips and knees separately. So taking those apart, we're seeing the same impact. And we're going to try to look at it with a, a video feed. So have our psychologists just do a video 
of his session and then give the video to our patients and see if they have the same impact. And I think, you know, going back from this, I've heard more about the apps, potentially look at the app and can a patient use an app to get that same impact. And with the video, are you going to sort of expect or talk to patients about like doing it more than once? Do you think repeat interventions will be helpful? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's the question, right? How many times they view the video? Can we track that? And I don't know the answer to that quite yet. The, this session that we did for this study was one 15-minute intervention, and we sort of let the patients go. That one intervention had impact out to six weeks. So, you know, if patients are continually looking at an app, potentially could be quite impactful. And just to be clear, the patient engagement platforms are communication tools for us. They offer us the opportunity to intervene, but it's also a way to educate and to provide an opportunity for communication into which we can add these services. And like you said, there's a number of them available online. They're easily downloadable. The vast majority are free. And now that you've shown us this extraordinary impact, I think we can all start thinking about this whole area differently. And uh, hopefully next year, you'll be bringing us even more information yeah. from your study group, which sounds like it's an ongoing project for you guys. You yeah, go is. real deep and lead the way in it from Salt Lake City. So. Thank you very much. Mike, do you want to have any last thoughts about what you're taking back from this? I think this just reminds us once again that orthopedic surgeons, we love to be hammers and nails, but there's a lot more to our patients. And this is just a really interesting look at how we can do other types of interventions for our patients that aren't just, like you said, more drugs, more surgery, and that can really affect their outcome. And so I'm just really excited to see what you guys have coming out next. Great. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys, for having me. Awesome. And with this, we'll conclude the third podcast in our series coming at you from the American Association Hip and Knee Surgeons Meeting in Dallas in 2019. My name is Stefano Bini. I'm Mike Aston. Thanks so much. And I'm Jeremy Gillen. Thanks for having me. We look forward to seeing you guys on our next podcast. And be sure to go on your social media sites and promote us and uh, give us lots of stars. And hopefully we'll increase the uh, reach of our podcast. Thank you again. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.